0: We've been in a teaching series in the book of Exodus. It's a book of the Bible that tells the story of the great redemptive event in the life of God's people before Jesus called the Exodus. And it's also a book that pulls the curtain back and shows us the kind of God we have and the kind of people that God wants us to be. And last week we said that in part one of the story of Exodus that the focus was on rescue. It was on God's rescue of his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then now in the second part of Exodus, we said the focus is on relationship. It's on answering questions like, who is this God? What is this God like? And who are we as his people? And what does it mean to live in a relationship with God in his world? In part two, that's the focus, and from here on out, that is going to be kind of the unfolding drama that we're going to see in the pages of Exodus, and it's going to continue today as we go back to the wilderness and join God's people there. And so turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. We pick up the story in verse 8 and read this. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. Saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We begin in the wilderness with God's people having left Egypt behind, and now they're following God through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. That's the destination, that's the place that God is bringing his people. And Mount Sinai in Exodus is a significant place. It's a place where God is going to come and dwell with his people in a cloud. It's a place where God is going to give his people authoritative teaching that's going to help them understand what it looks like to live in relationship with him and one another. And it's the place where God is going to give his people a blueprint to build him a meeting place where he is going to come and he is going to live amongst his people. Big stuff is going to happen at Sinai. And Israel, they're almost there. It's in their sights. Before they arrive, they make one last stop at a place called Rephidim. And God, just like he did last week, is going to use what happens there to continue his work to form Israel's thoughts about who he is and about who they are as his people and how they're to live as his people. But this time, it's not water and food. This time, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a fight with a nation of desert dwellers called Amalek, which means the context for this story and this teaching moment for Israel and for us is a battle. It's the context of war. On one side, you have God and his people, and on the other side, you have Amalek, this other nation of desert dwellers. And as we said before in this series, uh, countries like Egypt and nations like Amalek, they represent all that is opposed to God and what he wants to do in the world. And this is not the first and only time that Amalek is going to show up in the story. If you skip ahead and you read further along into what's called the Old Testament, you see that Amalek is going to be a thorn in Israel's side for years to come. They were a a perpetual enemy of God's people, and they were always a constant threat to their well-being and to them living out their calling to be the people of God in the world. This is the context where God is going to continue to teach his people in the context of battle. And you know, so far, every step of the way for Israel in the wilderness has been a battle of one kind or another. First it was water, then it was no food, and now Israel is in a fight with an enemy. And of course, there have been really good things too, like amazing things that they've experienced in the desert, like water coming out of a rock miraculously, or bread raining down from heaven to feed them and fill their stomachs, miraculous and gracious provision from God. So there has been really good things along the way for Israel, yet at the same time, The road's not been easy. Israel has had a fight on their hands every step of the way, which is often how life feels, doesn't it? I mean, I know that's true for me sometimes. Like, it feels like my life is just one battle after another and sometimes, to be honest with you, it's just incredibly overwhelming. Like, I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to be a good dad and a good husband and a good leader, and I'm constantly fighting the lies that are telling me that I'm not good enough, and that I'll never be good enough no matter what I do. I'm trying to work through the deep wounding in my life so that God can heal my soul and I can be a better version of myself for the people around me. That's not an easy road. That is a hard journey to walk. And then you know what? My family gets sick. I got two young kids. And if we go two weeks without our kids getting sick, it is a win. But our whole lives get derailed when sickness hits our home. And then I have, I've had car trouble recently and I'm worried about what it is and and how much money it's gonna cost me. And then there's the house repairs and finishing taxes and I'd love to exercise more, but I don't seem to have enough time or I'm just too tired to do it. I mean, sometimes it just feels like a battle. Do you ever feel that too? I mean, sure, there are moments in our lives where everything just falls into place and things just seem to run smoothly, but, doesn't it feel like sometimes you wake up and it's just a battle you have to fight every single day? I mean, you wake up and your your feet hit the floor and all of a sudden the stress and the worries and all the concerns you have, they hit you like a tidal wave. And you've only been awake for a few minutes. And it's there in that moment as your feet hit the floor and that stuff hits you, you think, here we go again, another day, another fight to make it through. I mean, I I feel like this sometimes, that life is a battle, and if it's not one thing, it's another. It feels like I'm always going uphill. It just seems that sometimes things just don't line up in the way I want, or they're so much harder than I would like them to be. And sometimes it just feels like I'm fighting against something, or something's pushing up against me, and it's just making my life harder. I mean, maybe you feel this too, but life just feels like a battle sometimes, doesn't it? And so the question I have as I think about this and how it relates to me in my life, I say, well, what do I do with that? How do I face this reality? Well, thankfully, the Bible speaks into our lives in these ways in Exodus 17 and 18. Our passage today has something to say about this, has something to offer us as a way to help us navigate this reality. Because as you dive deeper into this story, two things become very clear. The first is that we are in a fight And the second is that we fight best with weapons that are outside us and beyond us. Both realities come into play as we dig into this story more deeply. And to do that, I want to ask three questions of the text. They're not the only questions that we can ask as we come to the Bible to understand it, but they are crucial questions that if we ask them, it will help the Bible to speak. And so here's the questions we're going to be asking of our passage today three of them. Firstly, what does this passage reveal about God? Secondly, what does this passage reveal about life in God's world? And lastly, what does this passage reveal about how we are to live in light of this? And as we ask and we answer these three questions today, hopefully we're going to see what Exodus is going to teach us is that we fight fight best with weapons that are outside us and beyond us. That's what i hope you see today and so question one what does this passage reveal about god well a couple things the first one being this is that the god who wins victories in egypt wins them in the desert too see it doesn't matter the place or the people it doesn't matter the situation or the circumstance god remains undefeated his enemies are no match for this god's power what was true in egypt is also true in the desert if we go back to the shores of the red sea in Exodus 15, 3, we read that the Lord is a warrior. He fights for His people. He defeats His enemies. He thwarts their plans and agendas. Why? Because Exodus 15:18 says the Lord will reign forever and ever, in every situation, in every circumstance, in every era of history, and over every area. Uh, area of life. This is who God is. He is a warrior who fights for his people. He rules and reigns over all things. He's not just the maker of heaven and earth. He rules over it too. He rules over the situations of our lives, the obstacles we face, the valleys we're in, the mountaintops we stand on. He's there and he's ruling over it all. Sure, we may not see it, or we may not even believe it's true based on the evidence that is around us but it still remains the same. This God is the maker of heaven and earth and he rules over it all too. This God is with us. He fights for us and he's ruling over every aspect of our lives and over every aspect of creation. And Israel, God's people in the desert, they're learning this firsthand. And you know what? We need to learn from their experience that God is not against you. He's for you. He loves you, he's gonna take care of you because he wants good things for you, that the God who wins victories in Egypt is the God who wins them in the desert too. Why? Because that's who he is, but also because this God has power to deliver us from all our enemies. We saw in Egypt, the plagues, the Red Sea, that this God has power over his enemies in Egypt, and we're seeing it in the wilderness with Amalek, that God's power is greater than the power of his enemies i mean what god what nation can match a god who split seas what nation what god can match this god who makes water come out of rocks or bread rain down from heaven no god can this god stands alone he is matchless in power and sure there are nations and there are people and supernatural beings who are opposed to God and everything he wants to do. And they do everything in their power to try and stop what he's up to, but the reality is they can't. Try as they might, they can't beat God. They can't defeat God's people, because why? They're God's people. God is on their side. They've been chosen by God. Israel, God's people, the church, have the Father's heart, and he is going to work through them to accomplish his purposes in the world. This God and his people, when this God fights for them, they remain undefeated. Like here, in the battle in this desert. On a day in history, in the desert, a battle is waging and God is fighting for his people. Israel, they're swinging the swords, but it's God's presence and power that win the fight. And Exodus reminds us of that by focusing our attention on the staff in Moses' hand. And we've seen this before in this series, in, in some of the plagues at the Red Sea, that the staff is the symbol of the presence and the power of God. And that when the staff is there, God is there. When the staff is there, his power is at work. And here again, on the hill, in this battle, God is there. And his power is at work again. And so the key to this battle that Israel is fighting is not what's happening on the battlefield. It's actually what's happening on the hill. The hill where Moses is, the hill where Aaron and Her are. Why? Because that's where God is. His presence is with that staff. It's symbolizing that he is there with them, which is why we see Exodus telling us that whenever Moses' hands went down, Israel started to lose the fight. But whenever they were up, Israel began to win the fight again. It's a signal that this outcome of this battle is tied to God and his people's dependence upon him. When we look at Israel in this moment, we see agents of God's justice. God sends them to go into battle as his human agents to fight against someone who is opposed to him. But it is always God who's behind the battle. It's always God who is fighting the battle for his people. And so this victory. Israel wins it, but it's God's victory. He's the one who defeats Amalek. And so Israel again is learning something that they've already learned in Egypt. And now they're learning it again is that this God who wins victories in Egypt, he wins them in the deserts too. And now they're also beginning to see something else too is that God will ultimately not let his enemies win. He won't. Exodus 7, 14, 17, 14 says, then the Lord said to Moses, this is the aftermath of the battle. He turns to Moses and said, write this as a memorial in a book. And recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In other words, what God is saying is that he is going to defeat Amalek once and for all. Which is a hint to us about there's something going on that's bigger than just this battle in this moment at this time. It's not just a battle in the desert. There's something bigger that is at play here. And we see that when we remember that nations like Egypt and Amalek and Babylon in the Bible who are out to stop God's plans in the world, they actually represent the enemies of God. And this sets the stage for our second question that we're asking of the text today is, what does this passage reveal about life in God's world? Well, it reveals that we're in a fight bigger than a physical battle. Like here in Exodus, there's a physical battle between two nations, and God helps one of them win, but what it's ultimately pointing to is a battle that's happening on a cosmic scale. See, this earthly battle is a a picture of what is happening in the heavenly realms. We don't see, but the Bible tells us it's real and it's happening that on a cosmic level, God is at war with Satan and his angels. And he's at war with anything and anyone who is out to kill, steal, and destroy all that God says is good and all that God wants to accomplish in his people's lives and in the world. And so this battle is an earthly picture of a cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. And this is the battle that is our greatest battle. Whereas one writer named Paul says in a letter that he wrote to a church in Ephesus, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the Bible has, pulls back the curtain to show us that there is an unseen realm, a, a heavenly realm where spiritual beating, beings of good and evil are, at, are, are battling it out. It tells us that there are forces of evil that are at work in the world today and exerting influence in this world, doing everything they can to disrupt God's people and God's plan. It's a reality at play in God's world. And the Bible makes it clear. It's up front about it. But here's the thing about it. We don't have to be afraid of it because of Jesus. See, because of Jesus, those forces are no match for God and they have no power over us. See, Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, he disarmed the power of these rulers and authorities. He triumphed over them at the cross and their power is broken forever. So even though Amalek, even though evil is at work right here and right now, God will never let Amalek win ultimately. He is working to redeem humanity. He is working to redeem all of creation to set things right after they've gone so wrong. See, one day Jesus is gonna come back And he's going to set all things right. One day, Satan and evil will will be defeated, which means evil has an expiry date. Sure, right here, right now, evil is at work, and it's trying to kill, steal, and destroy your life. But also, right here, right now, the reality is that we have a victory in Jesus, and God is fighting for us. He's fought for us at the cross. He's fighting for us now, and he will win the decisive once and for all end battle at the end of time where he sets all things right. See, we have enemies in this life, but God will not let them win. And if you need a reminder of that, just go back to a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Think about the cross. Think about the empty tomb, because that was where evil was dealt a death blow, and now it's time is running out. Because there God said to heaven and to earth, to good and to evil, to all of creation and to all of history, to you and to me, that the fight has already been won. Jesus has won a victory against evil that has broken its power and one day he will end its power for good. God has done this and he will do it. Skip ahead to the end of the story. Flip in your Bibles to the book called Revelation and you will see the end is really good as God puts evil and death and Satan to death once and for all. And so that's the reality we live in, the tension that we live in. And God wants the news of the hope and the rescue and the redemption we have to be the anchor point of his people. Something they come back to, something they remember, something they think about and anchor their lives on. And he wants this news to go out into the world and touch every life. And already in Exodus, we're starting to see this begin to happen. We start to see the that this news of a God who does this great kind of rescue is actually reaching other ears and drawing people in. And in chapter 18, what we see is Moses' father-in-law comes to visit and we see that this is what has happened for him. Verse 1 of chapter 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And so Jethro is not just family to, to Moses. He's also a, a high priest of another faith system. He's lived his whole life in service to another god or gods and a religious system. But notice, he hears the news of what God has done and he's attracted to it. He's drawn to this gracious and this powerful God who would do this for his people. He feels this magnetic pull to this God and it leads him to declare that God is greater than any other God and it leads him to worship. Chapter 18, verse seven says it this way. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. Who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians? Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And so Jethro speaks what he wants, God wants people to know that this God is greater than all other gods. There is none like them. This God has rescued his people and he is forming them to become who he wants them to be in the world. He's there with them, he's for them, he's providing for them, he's protecting them, he's fighting for them. There is no other God like this. And because Jethro is not of the Jewish background, what this means is that all are welcome. Nobody is exempt. All you need to do is lean your life on Jesus, put your trust in him, and you can be a part of this. You can have this God in your corner as you go through and face the battles of life. And so through the mouth of Moses' father-in-law, we see the power of God's rescue and God's presence in his people's life can have. And this leads us to the third and final question. What does this passage reveal about how we are to live in light of this and the answer is is that we need altars and arm holders we need altars and arm holders in other words we need something and someone outside us and beyond us to win the battles of our lives and in the end that's where exodus 17 and 18 lead us towards that it's ultimately about god at the end of the day that the fight we're in is about him and about his victory and about him bringing that victory to bear in greater and greater ways in this world. And ultimately, when he comes back to set all things right, it's not about our circumstances or our efforts or the enemies we face or even the leader that we follow. In the end, it's all about the presence and the power of God at work in the world, at work in us and through our lives to help us face and fight the battles we're in. we need to be reminded of this because we're so quick to forget. I mean, remember last week? Remember last week and how God's people kept forgetting just how powerful and gracious and good and all the things that he had done for them. No sooner had he given them water than they were grumbling about why they didn't have any food. I mean, we forget so fast who God is and what God has done. That's why we need something in our lives to help us remember who God is. And what he's done for us. And that's why we see Moses build an altar after God defeats Amalek in battle. Exodus 17, 15 says, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. And so, why would Moses build an altar? The answer is, is he wanted to remember what God had done. He wanted to remember this moment of rescue. He wanted to remember this moment of when God intervened in the lives of his people and did something for them that they couldn't do on their own. And really, if you you trace the story of the early parts of the Bible, this is why altars were built during this time, both by the people of God and by people outside the people of God. Altars were built to remember God and to worship him for who he is and what he had done. That's what altars are for biblically. They are dedicated and set up to remember God and worship him. But here's the thing, an altar is really wherever worship is. Meaning whatever has your worship, whatever your life rises and falls on, it could be money, it could be sex, power, achievement, recognition, being seen as as good at what you do, whether that's your job or parenting or a sport or an instrument you play. See, whatever you trust in and you look to to give you significance or value or worth and whatever your life rises and falls on, that's where your worship is. And where your worship is, there's an altar. See, we can't help ourselves here. We were created for worship. Our hearts are literally built to worship something or someone, and throughout Exodus, what we've seen is that our worship is meant for God and God alone, that he alone is worthy of our worship, and that the only altar to be built by our lives is the one that's dedicated to the worship of one name and one name only, Jesus. When we talk about worship, we're not just talking about what happens on a Sunday. We're not just talking about uh, one part of our lives. We're talking about every part of our lives. Worship is designed for all 168 hours of the week. And in the letter to the church in Rome, Paul, a writer that we've already seen today, he wrote this. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And so worship isn't what happens on a Sunday. It's an all-of-life thing. Our whole lives are to be an altar dedicated to the worship of God. That's how God designed it to work. And the problem is that for too many of us, we don't see it this way. We compartmentalize our lives. We have our church and worship life over here and the rest of my life over here. But in God's eyes, there's no distinction between that. All of life is an act of worship. Worship is something that we do all 168 hours of the week. And if that's true, if we worship and we can't help ourselves, then the follow-up question is, what are you worshiping today? I like what David Foster Wallace says about this. He says, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. See, I can't help myself and you can't either. We are always worshiping. And that means we have to truly ask the question, what is it that truly has my worship? Is it Jesus? or is it something else? See, we have to ask ourselves these kinds of questions so that our worship can be in the right place, in the place that God says it's supposed to be. And then we need to set up altars in our life to remember who God is and what he's done. We need to take the time to remember God's work in Jesus and his work in our lives, because worship has the power to lift us up above the battle and carry us through to the other side like nothing else. See, worship shapes our perspective. It forms our thoughts and our hearts and reminds us of what is true. And we need that because we forget so quickly. And so it could be a journal you write in, a note in your phone, a time of silence to think about what God has done, a conversation with a friend where you share about what God has been doing in your life. All of these moments can be altars that you set up to remember God and what he's done and is doing in your life. They can be opportunities to reorient you, you and your worship to the one who actually deserves it and is worthy of it. And so to face the battles of life, we need altars, but we also need arm holders. We also th- see this in Exodus 17 and 18. You see Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms when he couldn't do it anymore. You see Jethro giving Moses advice about a better way to lead and to adjudicate matters amongst the people. Like Moses literally could not have done any of what he did in this chapter without help. He needed arm holders. He needed people to lift him up when he was growing weary. He needed someone to speak wisdom into his life. Because as Jethro told Moses, we can't do this alone. Chapter 18, verse 17. What you are doing is no good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone, Moses. That's, what, that's, that's the wisdom that Jethro speaks into his life. And the temptation you and I will always have is to try and go through life alone, doing it in our own strength, doing it in our own power, trying to control everything, to be the answer to all that we need, to rely on ourselves instead of rely on Jesus. That temptation is always there. But the reality is that you and I need help to make it through this life, from God and from others. I mean, even Moses needed help. Moses was the man. He was God's chosen leader. He spent time with God. He heard from God. He was used by God in incredible ways. He was hugely influential in the Exodus and his name echoes throughout history because of what he did and what he taught and how faithful he was. But even Moses needed help. Even Moses needed arm holders. And just like Moses, you and me, we can't win the battles of our life on our own. We need help too. And one of the most radically humble things that we can do is actually admit that we need help, just like Moses does. See, when Jethro came to Moses, Moses could have gotten all bent out of shape when when Jethro tells him, you can't do this on your own. He could have ignored Jethro and done it his way and just continued on in the way he was going. And he could have refused Aaron and Hur's help on the hill when he was growing tired. But Moses doesn't do that. What does he do? He lets Aaron and her hold up his arms. And Exodus chapter 18 ends by telling us that Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. See, one of the most radically humble acts is to say, "I, I can't do this on my own. I need help. And the question I have for myself as I've read this, but I have for you today is, are you that humble? Are you that teachable? Are you willing to listen to others and listen to the wisdom they want to speak into your life are you willing to rethink how you're doing things when others try to help you and show you another way moses was and we can begin to be too if we just admit that we need something outside us and beyond us to help us face the battles in this life that we too need altars and arm holders just like moses did and in this story We need, it's clear, we need altars and we need arm holders and ultimately we need God to help us do life and to make it through and fight the battles that we face. See, the reality is you don't have to do this on your own. You can try, you can want to, but you don't have to and you don't need to. When you have altars and arm holders, you can face the fight and come out the other side because something outside you and beyond you is coming alongside you to help you do What you can't do on your own. And so as we end, I want to ask you two questions. And this is between you and the Holy Spirit about how you answer, but wrestle with these questions. Firstly, what altar can you build this week to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Maybe it's been a long time since you've actually done that, to just sit down and just to be in the presence of God and remember who he is and what he's done. What altar can you build this week to remember who Jesus is and what he's done? Secondly, Who are your arm holders? Who in your life do you have to lift you up when you're getting weary, to speak truth over you when you're struggling with lies? Who do you have in your life to support you when everything seems to be falling apart? Who in your life can you call at two in the morning and saying, everything's awful. Can you pray for me or come over and help me? Who are your arm holders? Think about those things. And then remember today's talk. Remember this moment in the wilderness that there is a God who is for you. He is with you and he wants to fight with you. And all you, all you have to do is let him and let him into your life and let the people he sends your way into your life to help you in the battles we face. Because the truth is we all need altars and arm holders to make it through life. Moses did, I did, and maybe you do too.